0: Hello listeners, Beyond the Mask in conjunction with NBC RNA is pleased to announce that listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how to submit
1: them, go to our website.
0: The history of the nurse anesthesia profession suggests that regardless of the challenge or crisis facing it, the right person at the right time with the right message was chosen by the membership to lead. This segment of our podcast is entitled The Courage to Lead. We are pleased to highlight some of these contemporary visionary leaders. We want to express gratitude to all and give encouragement to those that will accept the challenge in the future. And my co-host is Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it?
2: It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I
0: think it is. Well, Sharon, I'm excited again.
2: (laughs) You're easily excitable.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Only at certain times, and this is one of them, because we're back in the studio together. Oh, it's about time. Golly, what's it been? It's been since, what, March, April?
2: March, March. Yeah. March since we've been in the studio. Yeah,
0: I mean, so... Yeah, we're I'm, still
2: social distancing across are. the We are. We don't want any
0: hate mail, guys, but uh, we are social distancing in here, and... I don't use Sharon's mic and she's not using mine because she told the story of one of Pierce's friends getting it who's a DJ and shared the mic with someone and actually ended up getting covid, right? Did. Yeah, so you stay away from my mic.
2: You don't touch my mic either. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, you know, we have a special guest with us today. We do. Yeah. You want to keep them in suspense a little bit longer?
2: Oh, well, we'll go ahead and tell them. You know, we have this Courage to Lead series. Yeah, your brainchild. uh, I love this series. And we are going back and interviewing past presidents of the AANA and listening to the things that occurred during their year because we soon forget sometimes. So today we have the pleasure of having Deb Molina with us today. Hey, Deb, how are you?
3: Hey, hi, good afternoon, guys. Good uh, to be here. Yeah, all the
2: way from, she's in Californ- California time. Yeah. But, you know, and I had totally forgotten this whenever I was looking back over your bio. We were state presidents at the same time. That's how I met you.
3: That's right. Yes, I had totally right. forgotten, oh, but yeah,
2: yeah, I was North Carolina State President. She was Tennessee State President.
0: Tennessee? Exactly. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah,
2: but she's from Ohio. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! You're I'm from, from Ohio, Ohio.
0: You were but... Tennessee State President, and now you live in California.
2: Wait, there's something yeah. else in the middle of that. Oh,
0: okay. <laughs>
3: there's something else. Yeah, I made a pit stop in Florida for a while. So. Oh. Okay. So yeah, so I've actually lived in three different regions of the A. A. Now, were you
0: in Florida when you were A. A. President? Yes. Yes. That's what I thought I remembered. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I
3: was in Tennessee as president-elect, and then I took a position in Florida that would make it a little bit easier for me to be president of AANA, and so I moved there.
0: So funny, though, because I remember when you were president, and I looked back and I saw the date. It was 2011 and 12, and I swear, it doesn't seem like that's been eight or nine years ago to me. I mean it is coming to fruition you know as you age time just seems to go go faster faster and faster i mean it's really true so
2: well tell us a little bit about yourself Deb, because she's got a really interesting history because you started out as an lpn right
3: i did i started out as an lpn and then i left nursing for a while after that and ran a bunch of different industrial businesses decided to go back into nursing and so I transitioned in a bridge program to be an associate degree RN and then I took another bridge program and became a bachelor's degree nurse and then I went to anesthesia school and got my master's in anesthesia.
0: Wow and you also have uh, your MBA I noticed.
3: Yeah I got an MBA part of that is because of my love of um money and
0: <laughs> we could talk the same language, Deb.
3: <laughs> and and having been in business in a number of different venues, and then I went back and got a doctorate in nursing science from the University of Tennessee when I lived in Tennessee.
0: Wow. A lot of And I'm uh, done. And you're done. Are you sure? I mean you could be like Sharon, so. you know, and go back go back again.
3: No, I'll
2: leave that to Sharon. <laughs> <you. laughs> I'm just trying to catch up to Deb.
0: Uh, all right. So, you know, in our Courage to leave series, it is talking about, you know, what happened during the time you were president of the ANA, and And so far, what we've learned is every president that we've had on, there's really been nothing happened during their year. It was <laughs> calm and laid back. And, um, you know, it, it was like being on a cruise ship. Was it the same for you?
3: It absolutely was. I <laughs> had so much time on my hands. I just got to my feet up in coach um, on the airplanes and around home. the <laughs> country. <laughs>
2: well, I think one thing, I know Jeremy's being facetious, but the one thing that we have found consistently with everyone that we have interviewed has been that you go into the presidency with a plan and how you think things are going to go, and what your agenda is, and the things you're trying to get accomplished, and it gets blown up as soon as you take office. Now, did that happen to you, Deb?
3: Oh, no, not at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It, it certainly did. You know, a number of years ago, when presidents would come in and take office, they would just kind of start doing whatever was on their personal agenda. And so... In the early 2000s, we really tried to provide some continuity with a strategic plan that was within the ANA. And Paul Santoro, who was president when I was president-elect, had started the 50-state service strategy, which was really put in place to focus on state functional development as well as leadership development. And so it was really in its infancy, and that was something that I had continued to carry on during my presidency and really solidify it. Unfortunately, about three days before I took office at the annual meeting, NBCRNA announced the introduction and the unfolding of the CPC program, which really, through the association, as well as at that time, I think we had about 46 or 47,000 members into complete turmoil and free fall. And so I would say 80% of my time that year was spent on dealing with issues related to directly or indirectly that CPC program.
2: And that occurred in Boston. Right. That
3: did occur in Boston in 2011, August of 2011. And well, Sharon, I you were on my board. <laughs> I was. I was.
2: I still remember you getting everybody and taking us to some back room and and it,
3: we had we had to go into crisis mode. Yes, um, we had no idea what this program was going to do to our membership numbers. And therefore, we had no idea what it was going to do to the ANA finances and our income. And we had to look at what would be absolute worst case scenarios, which when we looked at it, we had the potential to lose upwards of 50 to 75 percent of our membership. So we had to put a plan into action to not only go into crisis mode, but we also had to reach out to our members, ally their fears, and really see how they felt about this issue because a lot of times the squeaky wheel gets the grease and we have a lot of ANA members who are silent. hmm And so we really wanted to reach out to them and see how they were feeling. So we did, we put together a survey that we sent out to every single one of our members. They could respond either online or they could respond via snail mail. We evaluated their responses at state meetings, at national meetings, We picked up the phone and called people. And some members were very, very angry and very, very threatening. I actually saved some of the most threatening communications I got from members. Some of our board, our regional directors, were actually afraid to go out to state meetings because of the threats that they had received from members. And actually, Sharon was at a meeting that I was at, I don't know if you remember it, Sharon. We were in Arkansas.
2: I do remember.
3: And there were a a number of people there that just chose to, they were angry and they were scared. And so I was the personification of everything that was wrong with the introduction of the CPC program. And so it was taken out on me. And thank God Sharon was there to run interference a little bit. But what we found from the survey we got about 7,000 surveys back, and we did that survey in November of 2011, right after really at, at the end of the AANA meeting, was when we started putting everything together. So we got about 7,000 surveys back. We had 168 pages of comments, and we had over 1,200 emails. Mm -hmm. from the members. And I don't have the exact percentage in front of me, but it was somewhere around 70% of the members were very, very angry and very upset. 30% said, why haven't we done this sooner? This is ridiculous that all we have to do is attend meetings and get CEs for them. And then there was a sprinkling that really had no opinion or didn't care one way or the other. So, um, the responses, like I said, we got a number of responses, and then we took those responses to the NBCRNA to negotiate with them. And in the interim, we also looked at what it would take to set up a different entity for recertification. And I always used to tell Sharon, you know, It sucks being a Mm grown-up
2: because um,
3: my personal opinion, after having dealt with the NBC RNA moving out of the ANA offices in the middle of the night Mm -hmm. the year before, and then their introduction of the CPC program, I wanted to blow them up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But cooler heads prevailed and said, you know, we can always save the nuclear option. But we really need to do what is in the best interest of the profession and the organization. And so we did that. And when we spoke to experts in accreditation and certification and recertification, we realized that at that time, and like you said, Jeremy, this was nine years ago, we were looking at upwards of $10 million dollars. And that did not include all the lawsuits that would probably ensue because NBCRNA, being its own separate entity, anything that we used that even looked remotely similar to what NBCRNA had in place, they could accuse us of stealing proprietary information. And so, after all of that examination, With the experts, with legal counsel, et cetera, et cetera, and the minds, the collaborative minds of the board of directors, we decided that we would certainly do our best to negotiate with NBCRNA and to change the CPC program as much as we could. And nine years later, I believe it does look very, very different than what they had rolled out to us on that stage in Boston in
2: 2011. Well, I remember you talked about crisis management, and we even had media trainers to come in and work with us because it was so heated at the state level when we would go out to the states, as Debbie said. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, It was just so intense. (laughs) So we needed some help to learn how to, to deal with members who were upset. So we all had more media training to prepare us for going out to the States. One thing, because Debbie had such a great financial background and she had been treasurer of the AANA and all of her business acumen, looking at what it would cost the organization. I know we looked at, we would have to mortgage both of our buildings again, everything. If we wanted to create another Uh, entity,
3: Um, And not knowing how long it would take to set up, getting it recognized in 50 states and Puerto Rico um, and what that transition would look like and what happens if you're certified by one organization and you're not certified by the other. I mean, it was not as simple as. Just putting
2: up a shingle.
3: (laughs) Yeah, as people thought it would be, well, we'll just start another organization. We also, within the ANA, we tasked, the CEO at that time was Wanda Wilson, on looking at where we could cut expenses to cutting staff completely, cutting staff hours, doing more video conferencing and phone conferencing cutting down on travel. I mean, we looked in every single corner that we could to try and get our expenses down in case we had such a significant loss of revenue that it would impact us. And I should mention that we did not see that significant loss in revenue. We had a little bit of a drop, but it was not anything like we had anticipated that it might be.
0: Yeah. And if I remember right, also, you you froze the defined benefit plan for A&A employees, right?
3: Yes, we did. But that was part of this whole worst-case scenario plan. But it also was something that had been in the talking stages for a long, long time. And for those people that don't really know that much about a defined benefit plan, it's a pension. Basically, it's a pension versus what your traditional...
1: 401K. retirement account yeah.
3: would be a 401k or a 403b and to the recipient it is not affected by market fluctuations and it's very complicated you have to have actuaries involved that determine how much the company has to deposit every year to cover all their covered employees and the assets of the plan then are ba- basically they're held in a pool rather than individual accounts for each employee. And as a result, the employees have no voice in the investment decisions. But once you have a defined benefit plan, the employer must continue to fund the plan, even if the company has no money or no profits in a given year. It's expensive,
0: a.k.a.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
3: So since the employer makes a specific promise to pay a certain sum to that employee in the future, it's the employer who is some the risk of fluctuations in the value of the investment pool. And so having seen what happened in 2007, 2008, we realized and we had a couple higher paid employees that did retire and they took their DBP all at once. Yep. they took all their money out at it once that was one of the things the weaknesses that we have realized in the structure of the plan so in essence an employee can go in and say okay I want my half million dollars right now even though for the lifetime of their pension even though in prior years or the year before the value of that dvp had gone down significantly and so We realized a few years before that, that we needed to change that defined benefit plan. And obviously, for obvious results, employees were against having that happen, because that's a nice little nest egg to have for your retirement. So, But what happened in 2011 really, really cemented our rationale for going ahead and getting rid of the defined benefit plan, giving the employees a regular retirement plan, a 401k. And the ANA froze that plan at that point. And I believe it was just last year or the year Mm -hmm. before that they finally, um, it was completely funded and they were allowed to close that plan completely. So it's a very convoluted but again, it's very expensive for an organization to continue with those kinds of plans.
2: And it was quite a chunk of change every year that we had to automatically oh, yeah. fund in the millions. Millions, yes. millions
3: every year. Yeah. Yes.
0: No, and I mean, you know, in, in this day and time those plans are antiquated. They were plans that were put into place seventies, maybe eighties and you know, at that point in time, interest rates were different and you didn't have as many defined contribution 401k, 403b plans. So the right thing to do, even though obviously I'm sure employees didn't appreciate it, but the membership should appreciate it as a good move. And as you were talking, Deb, I just keep thinking back, Sharon, to what you always say, right person, right time. You know, your business acumen, your background to deal with these things at that point in time. I know. Could you
2: imagine me? Yeah, I mean, it was just
0: perfect. I mean, you know, you all have people around you and so forth, but you you still are put in situations that if you don't understand it, you don't have the background, you've got to learn that and rely on other people around you. And Deb, you had the background in this, so obviously it helped during that time period.
3: Thankfully. I think we made a lot of good decisions during that year and you like boards to not always agree on everything right. because you don't want to rubber stamp everything you don't want to have group think and we did not but I think we were united in the concept that we were going to find the right way to survive this crisis and hopefully come out the same or better in the long run
2: well, I know it was kind of a global thing looking at all expenses, and I know we had to deal with the Council of Accred because we underwrite them to a large extent, but yes. and that money's needed to be defined going forward, and you want to talk about that just a little bit?
3: Yeah, well, as Sharon said, the Council on Accreditation, which of course is very close to the ANA, but it is its own entity and it has to be because it has never generated enough income from its site visits to accredit nurse anesthesia programs and whatever other fees that it gets from those accreditations it's never made enough money to be self-supporting and so ana always gives it a grant every year and part of the crisis mode, again, looking at all the money that we provided to our affiliates, we also looked at the a a Foundation. So we weren't just picking on the council, but in talking to the council about how they could become more efficient in their operations, we also brought up the fact that we had been hearing from some of their stakeholders being students programs and those clinical preceptors and clinical CRNAs, that they wanted to have a more streamlined, transparent form of communication with the council. They felt that if they had concerns about a clinical site or a student or a faculty member, that there was no clear process for them to communicate that to the council without potentially jeopardizing their job, or in the case of a student, jeopardizing their position in their nurse anesthesia program. And so what we brought to them, I think initially was a little shocking to them and kind of really shook their world. But I think that they really took to heart that we were not trying to persecute them, but that we were really trying to make them better, and make the educational process better for the programs, the students, and those clinical sites, and those clinical CRNAs who most of the time are teaching those students and are not getting anything for it.
0: Yeah, and I think you, you also, during your time there, you did kind of a pilot on CRNA reimbursement advocacy as well, didn't you?
3: Yeah, they started looking at how different states and different regions were being reimbursed. And we all know that, especially with Medicare, we have regional Medicare administrative contractors who determine what procedures are going to be reimbursed and at what rate they're going to be reimbursed at. And so what CRNAs in New Hampshire perhaps can get reimbursed for with regard to pain management. And we went through that with evaluation codes for CRNAs that were doing chronic pain management in New Hampshire. They may be getting reimbursed for it, but then out in California, they weren't getting reimbursed. And so we started looking at what was happening in individual states and finding out who the experts were in those states, because you can't have an office in Park Ridge, Illinois, and expect a handful of staff members to be able to keep their finger on the pulse of every single state and what is going on in those states. And so through that pilot project and surveying what was going on, that's how we came with the state reimbursement specialists that we have now that really look at reimbursement for specific states and how that can be enhanced, what some of the barriers are to that. For example, in California, CRNAs can do chronic pain management, but we are prohibited from operating fluoroscopy equipment even if there is a physician standing in the room with us. And so that's one of the barriers that we have found to practice We can get reimbursed for it, but we can't do part of it.
2: Well, there was something else pretty exciting that happened during your year (laughs) outside of being
3: tumultuous.
2: (laughs) Talk about the article that was written by the anesthesiologist.
3: Oh, yeah. Franklin Dexter. Franklin Dexter is an anesthesiologist and he's primarily a researcher, but he wrote an article in March of 2012 in anesthesiology, and it was a comparative study that was titled The Influence of Supervision Ratios by Anesthesiologists on First Case Starts and Critical Portions of the Anesthetics. And while the article spoke a lot of veiled terminology about the fact that upwards of one third to one half of all cases in various facilities are delayed or do not have, are delayed because they don't have an anesthesiologist free to come in and be there for the key portions of the case, induction, emergence, any type of critical events that may happen, or those physicians are not able to make it into the room. And so their recommendations were that they stagger cases, they bring more physicians on board to help cover those cases. They also discussed the fact that from a financial perspective, it was totally impossible to do so. And so, but reading between the lines, what it was really saying was that physicians themselves are admitting that they are not meeting the critical seven steps that TEFRA mandates that they fulfill to be reimbursed by Medicare. And so for us, that was pretty big news that they themselves were admitting that they were not fulfilling those obligations, so they were either committing insurance fraud or that they were being inefficient in their practices. And so for CRNAs, that spoke to the fact that if we got rid of medical direction, it would simply make the system more efficient and would make the physicians more honest.
2: Well, that was kind of laying the groundwork to what we're seeing now with the changing of the models that we're seeing going on in practice. But I still pull this study out all the time, absolutely, all the time. And, you know, I never understood why they published it in their own journal. I mean, <laughs> what were their thought processes in that? I don't think we ever found out that answer,
3: did we? No. And having met Dr. Dexter, he is so far above the political fray because he's so focused on research that I don't think it ever entered onto his radar screen what exactly he was saying about the anesthesia care team and the medical direction model. And I've always felt and said that CRNAs can provide the best care of any anesthesia provider, and I believe that we do, but it was going to be economics that drove the change. And I think mm-hmm. we're seeing that yep. now. That Absolutely. the economics and the crisis that we're in are driving the change. <clears throat> yeah, we've always done great work. Now everybody just knows that we do.
0: Yeah. Well, we all know healthcare is going to have to bend to economics moving forward even more. So, so uh, another question for you, you: Know every president has always hoped for removal of supervision on their term. What happened during your years?
3: Yeah, we always hope for that. Mm-hmm. Um, we all hope we're the one that gets
0: to yeah, announce it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we always
3: wanted to get that one. Well, like all presidents of the ANA do, we go to Washington, D.C. multiple times. We meet with multiple elected officials as well as you know those people that actually work Those salaried bureaucrats (laughs) that know more about what's going on in Washington, D.C. than just about anybody else. And so going to CMS and HHS, we were told very, very frankly when my president-elect Janice Isler and I went that the answer to will you remove supervision is not no, but not now. Yes,
0: mm. I remember um, that. Yeah,
3: because it's such a political hot potato that no one wanted to have their name attached to it. And so our that president right
2: much. now doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't care if his name yeah. attached to yeah. it. Good for him yeah. for that. I don't care.
3: Um, but so that was that was pretty much the end of that conversation for that year, with regard to the removal of civilian CRNA supervision. But we did have a significant win with Air Force CRNA. Yes.
2: And that went, Jan Settner
3: testified? Yeah, it was Jan Settner, yeah. Who just um, now got on the board? Yes. Yes, so exciting. Caroline McGrath and Jan Settner. And I have to say that this kind of speaks to you know, knowing all the peeps in your region and having grown up with them, mm-hmm. um, because I ha- I was in Virginia for a state meeting and we were sitting around at dinner and it was actually Louise Hershkowitz that said, hey, Jan, tell Debbie what's going on with you guys in the Air Force. And so she proceeded to tell me that there were a group of anesthesiologists in the Air Force that... We're seeking to have the language changed in the Air Force policy booklet saying that CRNAs had to be supervised by an anesthesiologist at all times, which they, on one hand, they just wanted to laugh because the CRNAs that I met that ended up being the principal individuals working on this had all been deployed and had all been on the front lines. And they had been the only anesthesia providers there, sometimes for thousands and thousands and thousands of miles. And so for them to say that they had to be supervised, they number one, they knew they were never going to get physicians out there on the front lines to supervise them. And number two, having been in that environment and working independently to then come back to the States And to be slapped in the face with that, well, now you have to be supervised, it just didn't fly well with them. And so they didn't really know what to do. So once again, we geared up and literally overnight, we got speaker training for them, we got talking points lined up, we got experts. And so when they went into their meeting, probably about 10 days to two weeks later, they just blew it out of the water. They totally laid it out, chapter and verse, why CRNA should not be supervised. And consequently, as a result of that, supervision was totally removed from the US Air Force manual. And it also says that not only can a physician be in charge of an anesthesia department, but a CRNA can also be the chief of an anesthesia department in the US Air Force. Mm-hmm. And so that was a huge. huge well, event. they wow.
2: changed their messaging somewhat after this because you know, physicians aren't on the front lines, anesthesiologists right. are not. Right. So they changed yep. their messaging saying the reason why they couldn't is because they were so valuable. valuable.
0: We've heard that right. before. Haven't we? yes. They were yep. so
2: valuable, but the <laughs> CRNAs are expendable. <laughs>
0: kind of the same f- yeah. thing about COVID now, you know, oh, yeah. too valuable.
2: <laughs> well, <So>. that, well, <laughs> we know it, in North Carolina, there were big facilities that were not, Anesthesiologists were not taking care of COVID patients mm. only the CRNAs because the anesthesiologists were too valuable yeah. to take care of COVID patients.
0: Mm. Interesting. Who buys that story?
2: Uh, the Um. anesthesiologist (laughs) but they pay
0: for that story Deb they don't buy (laughs) it they pay for it
2: (laughs) so tell us what were some of the most important lessons that you learned while I mean through all of these years of leadership and continuing leadership
3: well like I, I had said before that being a grown-up sucks sometimes.
2: Um, a lot of times.
3: <laughs> a lot of
2: times. Because, again... That was the mantra. Every time something else would hit. <laughs> and and Deb would always say, being a grown-up sucks. Okay, let's, let's yeah. take care of this issue. And Sharon
3: knows me. And I am not a... You know, I'm not a calm person sometimes. I'm not necessarily the most uh, socially savvy person. Um, so I've had to... Um, kind of temper myself and realize the old saying, you know, you get more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. Yep. And then the other thing is that, as Colin Powell had said, being a leader means sometimes pissing people off. Mm. And if you go into a leadership position with the mindset that you want to please everybody, you can't. If you are going to make critical decisions, or any decision for that matter. If you are going to make a difference, if you are going to move an organization ahead strategically, you're always going to aggravate somebody. There's always going to be somebody that doesn't like what you did. And you just have to accept that. Listen to what they have to say. And they may have some value in what they have to say. But at the end of the day, the decision is yours. And in the case of the ANA, not only yours, but the boards. And there may be some people that are angry with you, and that's okay.
0: Deb, that's surprising in this uh, this industry of CRNAs. You know, since you're, I mean, you guys are such laid back personalities, type Bs, you know, just <laughs> yes. never, never get on your high horse about anything. And, you know, it's very surprising.
2: I still have all my desktop. <laughs> On my computer, Colin Powell's 12 things of leadership because you sent it to the whole board and I still, Uh, I still have it on my desktop.
3: Yeah. Uh,
0: Well, is there anything you'd like to share maybe with the new CRNAs coming up that might hear this and leadership lessons of, of what you've learned along the way?
3: Yeah. Especially now with the ANA annual meeting coming up, the business meeting always issues of contention and in these days of just people living on social media, um, we hear all kinds of negativity and criticism about each other and about the ANA. And so I would like to tell those new CRNAs and even those younger CRNAs that it isn't you against me and it isn't us against them. It doesn't make any difference whether you're an independent practice, if you are an anesthesia care team, if you're an educator, if you are simply a clinician. You know, sometimes we behave like oil and water rather than partners in our profession. We attack each other in public and you never see physicians doing that. Mm And we don't consider the wealth of ammunition that we are providing those individuals who are counterattack against us. So I say that we are one community who bears the responsibility for our future. But only if we're united will we have one.
0: I think that's a, a good point to close on. I agree. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. So, well, Sharon... I think that's a wrap. I believe so. Deb, we want to thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you for all you've done for CRNAs and the community as a whole and still continue to do out there. So thank you so much.
3: You're very welcome. Nice talking to you guys. Yeah.
0: All right, Sharon. Well, we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our other episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, <laughs> and leave us a review. But only if it's positive. There's enough negativity out there. Until next time. It's a wrap.
1: Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning. An independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855 304 Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA history series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA personal finance series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.